Uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is good to be in your house together as your people and in your presence. There is really no better place for us to be. We know, Lord, that you are with us always, no matter where we go, that we are never alone. But oftentimes uh, we feel alone and we don't sense your presence, we're not aware of your presence, and we are the poor because of that. And so we are learning, Lord, to recognize your presence and to, uh, to take hold of that reality and to live our lives in such a way where we know that you are with us always. It's easier to do when we're here. When we're gathered together as your people, when we are able to worship you with the gift of music and the gifted musicians that you have provided to lead us in worship, these songs that reach into our hearts and free our spirits to sing and to soar and to think about your goodness and your grace and your love, it is easier for us to believe that you are with us. So in this moment, we receive. And we receive gladly, and we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you that even when we don't sense your presence, you're there. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Even when we are weak or struggling or challenged, you are there. And so as we open your word today, we pray, that, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would make your word come alive in our hearing and in our hearts, that you would use this time in your word to convey to us what it is that you want to say about Jesus and our Father in heaven. And we submit this time to you in his precious name. Amen. So we're doing a couple of messages this summer on questions that came to us from the congregation earlier in the spring. We asked the congregation for some input on what they would like to have um, a sermon about this summer. So Jim did one last week, I'm doing one this week, and then Howard is going to do one uh, the week after that, and then I think we have one coming up in uh, August as well. And uh, they were great questions that came from, from everybody, and we, we went through them all together as a staff and tried to kind of pull the ones together that seemed similar to, to make clusters. We had about 20 or 25 questions come all together, and we wanted to cluster them together. And the one that we're going to do today uh, is a really good question. Uh, it's this one. Why do we pray for wellness or healing when it might be God's will to take it from us? Shouldn't we be praying for understanding and comfort? Uh, it's a great question. And it's one that uh, I really wanted to address. And I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about why I chose this one. Because I, I think it's a question that we want to understand that there is no easy, glib answer for. And I don't want to pretend that there is. It's a deep question. There can be all kinds of things behind such a question. There can be personal pain. There can be past experiences. There can be lack of hope. There could be you know, the, the desire for theological correctness. There can be all kinds of reasons behind this question. And I don't know who asked it. The questions were handed in anonymously. And so uh, that's not my concern. But what I wanted to do was, was to just take a few minutes to tell you why this question impacted me so that I wanted to make sure that it was one that we talked about this year, because it's certainly not an academic subject in any way at all uh, for, for me or for 
uh, the rest of us. Uh, a number of years ago, probably a few years ago, as I began to really uh, be led in a deeper understanding uh, of the kingdom of heaven and the reality of the kingdom of heaven now as a present reality and not just a glorious future reality, and we've just spent a lot of time talking about that. But as I was becoming more and more uh, convinced of that truth and reality, one of the things that impacted me by it was the, were, the, were the signs of the presence of the kingdom that Jesus gave to the disciples. And he said, just as I did these things, you will do these things. And so go out and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and, and, uh, and heal the sick and cast out demons. And as you do this, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near. And he was saying that these were the kinds of, of things that went with the breaking in of the kingdom, the free the healing, the releasing of people from the, the bondage and the suffering of sin. And these were things that, that Jesus enacted and the disciples enacted. And of course, we were wrestling with, well, so are they still present realities today? Does God still do those things as evidence of the presence of his kingdom on earth today? And I believe that he does. And we've been talking about that. We spent time about that. Uh, two years ago, as, as I was becoming more and more uh, burdened for this subject of healing and, and why we didn't see more people being healed in our, in our church, and I, I began to talk to people and say, we should really be talking more about this. And I had, I had lots of people saying, well, Kev, you don't want to get into that because you don't want to get people's hopes up. Because the reality is that many people are not healed. And many good Christians, many churches, many of us have had a long and lengthy journey in the faith, knowing person after person after person after person who has not been healed. And it's worn us down. And it's made us perhaps believe that maybe that's not something that God does or wants for us anymore. But with the support of the elders, uh, we took a bold step, and we took a couple of weeks a year ago this time, and we talked about healing, and we went through the scriptures, and we, we've produced this little booklet on healing, which is just a survey of the scriptures, and we encourage people, go back, read the scriptures, meditate on what the scriptures say, and let God speak to you from scripture again afresh about what he has to say about healing. In that last year, it's been a tough year. It hasn't been lost on me. At the same time that we were doing those messages, as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Roger Stanger had his diabetic episode right in the back, right back there. And last December he died. Just shortly after doing those messages, Gord Patterson died. And then more recently, Janet Reed, just a couple weeks ago, passed away. These were all unexpected deaths. These were all brothers and sisters that we loved and cared for and knew and prayed for. They had asked for healing. We had prayed for them. We asked God to heal them. And in the end, they died. And that's hard. I don't want to make, any, I don't want to make light of that. That's hard. That, that's hard for me. There have been many times where I've gone back to God and said, really, God? I mean, here you are, you've given, you've given me this, this burden for wanting us to encourage us to have greater faith and to be expecting of, 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 of your, your miracle, your, your power, and then these things happen. God, what do you, how do we make sense of that? But we can't forget 
that in the same passage of time, Susan Broda was brought through her breast cancer and declared to be cancer-free. Alice Chase also came through breast cancer and was told that she also was now cancer-free. And more recently, Wayne Mowat, who was hospitalized for four weeks with an inflamed pancreas and was, was on the edge, something could have gone very wrong very, very easily, and his life was hanging in the balance, has been brought through that and is now well on the road for recovery. And those are answered prayers. Talk to any one of those and they will tell you that they believe that God answered those prayers and has given them healing and has restored them to health. And there are other stories like that in our congregation. Many other stories like that. So what's the difference? What is the difference? How do we make sense of that? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I guess, as I said, it's not, it's not an easy question to answer. It's difficult. And it's one that um, greater minds than mine have weighed in on uh, in the past. Um, John Stackhouse uh, is a theologian, uh, professor, who wrote a little article recently called If Sorrow is Stalking You. And I just want to quote from that because he's talking about this very issue and he talks about how sometimes it seems like, you know, bad thing after bad thing after bad thing happens and you're kind of going, whoa, God, what is going on here? Why? Where's the relief? Where, where are you in all of this? Um, and he talks about it this way and he says this. He says, pain upon pain was common. He's talking about uh, how this is not new for the church. It's not new for the Christian family. He goes back to Martin Luther, and he talks about Martin Luther. He's going to quote Martin Luther in a second here. And he reminds us that Martin Luther in the 16th century, that for, the, for people who lived back then, you know, death was common. Child mortality was high. Martin Luther lost an infant child and then lost a teenage daughter. He was a man acquainted with grief. And he says, this is Stackhouse saying, pain upon pain was common, but no less terrible for its frequency. Luther needed somehow to cope with his own grief and counsel those in his charge. And he gave them this advice, don't try to figure it out. When we've gone as far as we can in our reasoning, we come to the edge of a yawning darkness, as wide as the Grand Canyon, but seemingly bottomless in its depth. Luther warned us, don't go further. Do not attempt to survey that valley of the shadow of death. Don't try to figure out why God allowed this particular suffering into your life or another's, but he hasn't seen fit to tell you why. Why not? Because Luther says you'll lose both your reason and your faith. You'll lose your grip and fall into the abyss. Down and, down and up will be lost to you. Clear categories of right and wrong will seem to change position. Good and evil will trade places. You will not be able to sort it out, and you will end up cursing God in the process. That's what Luther said. So what do we do then? What is the answer then, he says? Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Part of the reality of, of 
this kinds of suffering and unanswered prayer is the fact that there is, a, there is a depth of mystery here that we simply cannot understand. And the harder we try to understand it, the deeper the pit becomes. And so we have to be able to approach it another way. We have to find another way of tackling it, and that's what I want to share with you today. My go-to passage uh, in this journey that I've been on, and I've been encouraging us as a church to be on, is Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. So if you have a Bible with you or pull it up on your phone, take a look at it. It should be on the screen behind me. I think we've got our PowerPoint. Yes, we do. It's called the parable of the persistent widow. And let's read it together, or I'll read it and you can follow along. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. I want us to capture that. Jesus gave his disciples this parable for a specific reason. There's a lesson in this parable that the disciples are meant to take away, and we're told it from the very beginning. What is the lesson? Always pray and don't give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. So he sets up this situation. You've got this really, really ornery judge in the town who is supposed to be one who helps people find what they're looking for and meet people's needs and make sure that, that there's equity and justice and fairness in the town. But this guy is so hard and so ornery Right? He says, you know what, I, I don't care about people, I don't care about God, I'm just, gonna, you know, I'm just the guy. So we have this kind, of a, this kind of a judge, and we have this widow who needs something to happen for her situation. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about people, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep cutting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. He says, look at this picture. Listen to the judge. This, this unjust judge, this carnal human being, this egotistical person who is unjust in every way, even he will eventually concede to the widow's pleas and say, okay, I'll give her what she wants just to get her off my back. That makes sense to us. And Jesus gives us this picture, and he sets this picture over here, and he says, take a good look at it, because God is nothing like that. Your Father in heaven is nothing like that. Your Father in heaven is the opposite of that. He is the opposite of that. He says, however... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a bit of an enigmatic parable because the parentheses at the start and the finish are really important for us to understand what, what Jesus was trying to say and what Luke is trying to say as he carries this parable forward in his gospel. Jesus gave them this picture so that they would pray and not give up. Why? 
Because there are times when life is hard. There are times when the Christian life is hard. There are times when the Christian journey requires perseverance. There are times when the tendency will be to give up, when the tendency will be to surrender, when the tendency will be to say, God doesn't care. God doesn't see. God doesn't care. And Jesus gave this parable and he said, here, remember this. Remember what your father is like. Remember what God is like. In other words, if this is your circumstance and you are waiting and struggling and suffering, don't equate that with an uncaring, unjust God who simply isn't hearing you. Because that's not true. That's not what's going on. Something else is going on but not that. And then he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The parable is meant to remind us of of the importance of faith, to remind us of, of of the primary need that we have for faith, that faith is the thing that is going to keep us going. Faith is the thing we hold on to. Faith is the anchor that keeps us tethered in difficult times. And Jesus says, don't lose your faith. Don't give up on faith. And that's the purpose of the parable. And you know, when I looked at this, and, I, and one of the things we've been doing for the last couple of years is really trying to encourage greater prayer and greater prayer ministry. We have, we have prayer teams here on Sunday mornings. We have people that will go and meet with people to pray. Our elders are meeting with people to pray. We're, we're bringing our needs and our, and our concerns and our trials and our triumphs to God as a community more and more in prayer, more than we've ever done before. And that's a good thing for us to do. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because I see in this parable, Jesus says, pray and don't give up. Pray and don't give up. There's something in here, and I don't exactly know what it is, but there's something in this parable between Jesus saying, you need to pray and not give up and have the faith to not give up. And those two things somehow go together. And those two things somehow bring this all together. Even when we're suffering, or perhaps especially when we're suffering, or when we're waiting. It can sometimes be even harder if it's someone that we love who is suffering and we're waiting and praying for and feeling helpless because we can't really do anything to help. They're in God's hands. Christopher uh, Sitz is a uh, professor at Wycliffe College and um, professor of history. He wrote recently in one of their their articles about his wife Elizabeth's five-year journey with lung disease. She was a young, vibrant 60 years old. Uh, They were very active. They were involved outdoors. They were doing all kinds of events just in the kind of in the prime of their life when she was diagnosed with this lung disease and she very quickly went downhill. The time came when there was going to be nothing that could save her short of a double lung transplant and she was waiting and waiting for lungs to become available. She got sicker and sicker and she ended up going into the hospital and the doctors estimated that she had two days left to live when a pair of lungs became available. 
She was immediately medevaced to another city where they could do the transplant. And they did the double lung transplant, and for six days she lay in a coma after the surgery. And they weren't sure whether she was going to wake up or not. They didn't know if she was going to survive or not. On the sixth day, she did wake up. And she's gone on to make a recovery, and they're living their life, and she's, she's you know, healthy as a, as a double lung transplant person, and they're very actively involved again. And he's written about this, and, and here's one of the things that he says. He says, there are lots of stories of people who suffer terribly and don't make it, and that is a story to tell. For every one of us who has lost something or has, who knows loss, that's a real story. And as a community of faith, you and I enter into that grief and we share that grief because that grief is real. It hurts. It sucks that we didn't get the answer we hoped for. And we'd be lying if we pretend otherwise. But, he says... It is equally defying to have somebody make it. And people do make it. And people are healed. And God does bring people through and restore people to health. And that is equally a miracle. He says it makes you wonder why. Of course it does. It makes you wonder why. And that is that chasm that Martin Luther talked about that we have to be careful that we don't peer over into it so deeply that we fall into it and lose ourselves. You see, this is the difference between fatalism and faith. And this is really the, the thing that is dangerous to us as Christians. When we're in trouble, we are thrust upon the reality of our faith. And fatalism is not faith. Fatalism is where we basically say, the future is out of my hands. I have no control over the future. We resign ourselves to the future. It's a whatever will be, will be. And then we just wait to embrace it. The result of that, though, is resignation. We resign ourselves to the future, and the ultimate mood that it creates in us is one of despair and anxiety. It doesn't take away the fear. It just steals us to the inevitable of having something beyond our control that we can't do anything about. And that's a kind of a fatalism. That is not faith. That is not faith. Faith is different. Faith is trust. Faith is also saying, I don't have any say. I don't control the future. But I know the one who does, and I have confidence in that one and I will put my trust in him. And when we, when we choose that, when we exercise that, it results in peace and hope, not anxiety and despair, but peace and hope. And then whatever God chooses to do, and whatever God chooses to do it, and there can be lots of reasons why God chooses to do things differently that you and I can't always understand. But whatever God chooses to do, 
then we're okay with it. Because our trust is in him. Our confidence is in him. What are we trusting in? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 10, it says this. And we could go to all kinds of places in the Bible to talk about the goodness of God, to talk about the trustworthiness of God. And we all know that, and we would agree with that. It's when we get into the pit and we're there in that situation, that's when we begin to wrestle with it, right? Or when someone we love is there and in that pit and we're wrestling with it on their behalf as well. Is God a good God? Is he trustworthy? Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. That seems pretty one-sided. That seems pretty positive. Jesus saying, look, here you go. Open invitation. But then he goes on and says this, Which of you, if his son gives, asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And we have, again, one of these juxtapositions. Only this time it's us. Where Jesus says, look, if you, if you as a parent know how to love your child and meet your child's needs, what makes you think that your heavenly Father isn't going to be able to do that in a surpassing wonderfully glorious manner. And he points to the goodness of God. And he opens up the invitation and he opens up the door and he says, come, ask, seek, knock. God is there. He's listening. He's a good God. He's a good father. He will give you what you're asking for. But we fall back onto Luke 18 right? Pray and don't give up. And don't give up the faith. When we don't see God giving us the answer, the thing that we're asking for, we must resist the temptation to give up our faith and fall into fatalism and think that now we have God's answer. We may not see the outcome that we want, but that doesn't change the goodness of God. And we may never understand why, but that doesn't change the goodness of God. Because God is a good God. King David knew about suffering. And in Psalm 27, he wrote about it. And according to Jewish tradition, he wrote about this at the time that he was on the run from King Saul. King Saul was out to get him with his armies. you remember the story. He was being pursued, and this went on for quite some time. And some of the escapes, if you read 1 Samuel, you know, some of the escapes were pretty harrowing. David had some near misses. There was one time where Saul brought 3,000 of the best troops from all of Israel down to hunt down Saul and his 600 men. He'd been, you know, David had been betrayed. People had said, here's where he's hiding. Saul brought the army. And as the scriptures describe, you know, as there was a, a hill, a, a kind of a, a large hill. And as Saul and his army were going around one side of it, David and his 600 men were going around the other side. And the only thing separating them was that hill. But the scriptures say this, but God did not deliver David into Saul's hands. 
God was in the hill. God was the hill between the army and David. And David writes about that in Psalm 27, where he says this. He talks about what it is to trust God and seek God. But here are the two verses that I really want us to think about today. In verse 13 and 14, he says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David's expectation was that God was going to meet his need now, in this life. That David was going to be there for him now or that God was going to be there for him now, that God would do something to help him now. And that's where David had his confidence. He believed that God was a good God and that God would look after him. He didn't have this kind of theological framework that said, well, you know, all my trust is in God ultimately taking care of me in the future. That's obviously true. But this is a God who cares about our here and now as well. This is a God who's here for us now. So he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. That word wait in the Hebrew is the picture of being woven together, of things being intertwined. The picture here when he says, wait for the Lord, it's it's to be so trusting in God, so wrapped up into God, it's like you and God are woven together, inseparable. And he says, that's that's what we're doing. Trust in God with that kind of trust. Be strong and take heart. Keep our faith. Keep believing. Keep trusting in God's goodness. Don't give up on that. Don't believe that God has given up on you or your loved one because he hasn't. That can sound like a really one-sided message. And as I said, I'm well aware that grief is real and that when God does choose to answer in ways that we didn't desire, when we don't get what we asked for or hoped for, that's a very real pain. I get that. And I don't want to take anything away from that at all. But because that's the reality sometimes, it is not the reality all the time. And we're called to have faith, to proclaim God's goodness, to trust in God's goodness, So when I invite people to come and pray for their their needs or their issues, yes, we are absolutely asking God to meet that need, whether it's healing or finding a job or a marital problem or whatever. We're asking God to meet that need right here in the here and now. Obviously believing that God will decide what he wants to do, perhaps in ways that are absolutely beyond our ability to understand. But we will ask We will always ask because we believe. And we always want to believe. I want to encourage you to listen to the words of this Lauren Daigle song called Trust in You as a way of ending the message.
in. How do you know that God loves you? Especially at times where you feel that maybe God is distant or God is not listening to your prayers or certainly not answering your prayers the way that you hope for. Things that you are struggling with, things that you are wrestling with, you are by faith doing exactly what we've just talked about. You're coming to God over and over and over again with your need. You're saying, God, here it is. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. And you're not getting the answer you're looking for. The devil will come along and he'll whisper in your ear, you see, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about you. God is stern. God is punishing you. God is out to crush you. God is, is unreliable. Look at the story of Job. After Job had lost everything, his wife came to him and said, Oh, come on, Job. Curse God and die. Get it over with. God's clearly abandoned you. Just give up on this, this, this silly ideology of yours. Curse God and die and get it over with. And Job said, Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Job wrestled terribly. He didn't get answers. He suffered terribly. But he said, I will not give up my faith. How do you know God loves you from the depth of the pit? This is how. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of John that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes on him might not perish but have everlasting life. And so we say, yeah, okay, I get that. Jesus died for my sins so that I could live free, eternal, have eternal life and I can be forever you know, with him in the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, that's all good. Yeah, that, that's my hope ultimately. That's good stuff, but I'm hurting right now. I'm needing right now. I'm lacking right now. What does that do for me right now? In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables about lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And those parables are meant to teach us something about God. The nature of God. And that parable of the lost sheep is that God, you know, the shepherd, leaves the 99 and goes after the one. So, you know, we often say, we, you hear us say at church, we say, if you were the only person the only person that has ever sinned and needed a savior, needed someone to die for your sins, right? Jesus would have done it for you. You've heard us say that. That parable confirms it. That God would leave the 99 and come and find you. You. He did this for you. Because he loves you. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Jesus did this for you. That's how you know he loves you. That's how you know. Whatever else might be going on, whatever else is not getting answered, whatever else the cloud looks like that you might find yourself in from time to time, 
this is your safety line. Because this is rock solid. This is unmoving. This is the unmoved mover of creation. That he would give his life for you because he loves you. So whatever else is going on in our lives, it's not because God doesn't love us or care. So we can trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a good, good father. We sing those words. Holy Spirit, could you help those words to find a home in each of us deep in our hearts? Because they're true. Keep us from the evil one who wants to snatch away those words or to water them down or make them somehow less meaningful than they are especially now when we come to the table where we take of the bread and the cup, symbolizing and reminding us of how far Jesus went in his love for us, how far the Father went by sending his Son in his love for us. This is love. Jesus' death on the cross. This is love. So help us to receive it. Help us to receive your love. Translate this act of communion into whatever our love language is so that we can receive it, Lord, as your gift of love and your promise to us that you are who you say you are and that we are in your hands and we can trust you with whatever. That won't stop us from asking, seeking, and knocking and coming to you, Lord, and pleading for your intervention when we need it because we need you day by day. But here we pause and here we receive and here we give thanks because we know that whatever else might be happening in our lives, this is truth. This is our baseline. Would you bless this bread Bless this cup as we take in this communion. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your gift of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.